Um, so as Alex said, we've been, we've been going through a series in 1 John, and uh, we're about at the midway point right now. Um, personally, I haven't actually been able to make it here each week, but I've actually listened to all of the messages um, in 1 John um, on the Google Drive, which is kind of like really cool because like 10 years ago, even five years ago, like it was a lot more difficult to like share these types of files. I remember when um, the college ministry was separate. We had we had our own like separate website, and like there was a web admin, and he was the only one that could upload the file up on there, um, and it was just like really cumbersome. But there was only like you know one or two downloads a year or something. Usually it was like the speaker trying to hear their own sermon, seeing how they could improve. But anyways, it's just a huge privilege that we have such easy access. Uh, to so many resources pertaining to God's word. Um, so thank you to the AV team back there for serving us so diligently um, and making those recordings available for us. Um, by now, uh, we should know that one of the major themes in the book of 1 John is the believers' believers's assurance. That is, to provide assurance of eternal life to those who truly believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. In chapter 5, verse 13, we see this is explicitly stated by John. It reads, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And so the implication is that this group of believers to whom this letter was written, um, to whom it was addressed, they struggled with their assurance. See, at the time this letter was written, there were false teachers and false believers who caused this group of Christians to question whether or not they were on the right path. They heard conflicting truths from both within and without the church, and they saw others living contrary to what they were originally taught. Some claimed to be sinless. They brought the misconception that a believer could no longer commit sin, that once they believed in Jesus, they were perfect, and they were free to do anything that they wanted without consequence. There were others who John described as walking in darkness, right? They claimed to be um, followers of Christ, but their life showed otherwise. They disconnected the Christian life from Christian living, or Christian faith from Christian living. They were lovers of the world. They were haters towards one another. Yet they claimed to be Christian. They claimed to know Christ as their Savior. And still there were others who just flat out denied that Jesus was the Son of God. They abandoned the church and thought they could get right with God on their own terms. But were these people genuine believers? Were they still saved? See, something didn't seem right. Something, something was off. And so John, very thoroughly and, and very directly, he dealt with these issues in his letter. First John, to those who claim to be sinless, he said this in chapter 1, verse 8. He said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And verse 10, he says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. To those walking in darkness, he said this, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. To the haters, literally hating one another, um, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. To the worldly, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. To the false teachers, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. So for the false teachers, the ones who walked in darkness, 
um, the ones who had no desire to keep his commandments, there is no assurance. There is no eternal life waiting for them. They weren't only deceiving themselves or others, they were deceiving themselves into thinking otherwise. See, only those who abide in him, those who abide in Christ can have assurance of eternal life. Only those who keep his commandments and practice righteousness will see Jesus in heaven. Jesus said this in the Gospel of John, Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Now some might say, whoa, whoa, hold up. This is kind of starting to sound legalistic, right? I don't believe in this stuff. I shouldn't have to do anything to be saved, right? We're saved by grace. And you would be right to say that. Nobody is saved by their works. No one can ever do enough to earn salvation. But even though these things are not required of you, if you are saved, if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will do them anyways. You get that? Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. See, the person who abides in Christ will always bear fruit. There's no exception. Every believer will bear fruit. Let me put it another way. Even though your efforts to keep his commandments will not save you, if you are truly saved, you will keep his commandments. Does that make sense? Even though practicing righteousness will not ultimately save you, if you are saved, you will practice righteousness. You will abide. See, God in his divine providence has given us good works to perform, not as a means of salvation, but as a means for our assurance. A true believer is evidenced by his fruit, and God will not fail to produce that fruit in you. So as you grow and mature as a believer, as you continue to abide in Christ and bear much fruit, you will become more and more sure of your salvation. That's how he designed it. Ephesians 2 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. See, though you are saved completely by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not, a resulting, not resulting from works, if you are in Christ, he has designed you for good works. He has created you to walk as he walked. It's in the fabric of your soul if you are a Christian. And so as we are walking in step with Christ and bearing fruit, we can have assurance because it's an indication that we are abiding just as God has designed every Christian to do. See, only a true believer will abide. There is no such thing as a defective Christian. You either are or you are not a true believer. Or as Pastor Ray put it, you're either a saint or you ain't, right? And every true saint is designed to practice righteousness. So now, when we read the following statements from John, uh, we've gone over this in the past weeks, Don't see them as a checklist on how to be saved, okay? See them as manifestations 
of your salvation. Right? So if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Chapter 2, verse 3. By this we know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. Everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See, these verses provide proof of what is already there. So we gladly keep his commandments, right? We gladly love one another, and we gladly practice righteousness because they give us assurance that we are abiding in him. It's evidence that shows we are born of God. And so as we strive to be more like Christ, we look forward with confidence to the promise that he made to us in verse 25, which is eternal life. So that's kind of the context of what we've gone over so far in First John. If you're taking notes, our outline for, day, for today is pretty simple. Um, verse 1, of this, we're in chapter 3 of First John. Verse 1 tells us what we are. Verse 2 tells us what we will be. And verse 3 says what we should be. So 1, what we are. 2, what we will be. And 3, what we should be. If you're not already there, um, you can go ahead and turn to um, 1 John chapter 3. I'm actually going to start reading from chapter 2, verse 28, for some context. So. And then we'll pray and get started. Let me read it. And now, little children... Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book. We thank you that... um, it gives us assurance of our salvation, God. We pray that right now as we um, read and, and open and study your word, um, that you would give us clarity and that you would teach us um, many things so that we might be changed and that we might be um, encouraged uh, just to live a life holy and pleasing to you, God. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So as we're crossing over to chapter 3, remember that even though the Bible is divided into chapters and numbers and those sections and divisions, um, they only serve as a guideline. This letter in the Bible, um, it was meant, First John, it was meant to be read and understood as a whole. So just because we're going from chapter 2 to chapter 3, don't think that like we're totally shifting gears, like it's going to be a totally different thing, okay? John is still continuing his thoughts from the previous verses. He still has the second coming in mind from verse 28. And going into chapter 3, that thought of being born of him, 
from verse 29 kind of causes John to admire the grace that made this truth possible. Okay? Some call it a, like a parenthetical thought of John, as if he was suddenly struck by his own words as he was writing them. Okay? The fact that somehow, some way, we could be born, reborn into the very family of God. Right? How could this be possible? It's, it's just a, such a marvelous truth. And so John points us to what makes this a possibility in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. So it's God's love for us that causes us to be born of him. It's the love of God. There's a familiar children's song that goes, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And the chorus repeats, it goes, yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. Um, Many of us at an early age um, have been told that God loves us, right? But do we actually believe that? And if that's true, how do we know? Okay? And to answer this, uh, we first need to believe that this book is the actual word of God. Okay? If it isn't, then we're lost and we have no purpose. And we of all are to be most pitied. Right? But if this is God's word, and that's what we firmly believe and teach here, then we have hope. And we can look to this book for answers and we can count on it to tell us the truth. Okay? So does God really love us? Yes, he does. The Bible tells us so, like the song says. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world. So the song is right. But we need to qualify that answer and ask the harder question, especially for those of us who grew up in the church, right? Um, because at a young age, we can be taught a lot of things in Sunday school without really looking into the source behind that teaching. So we need to ask, how do we know? What evidence is there that shows God's love? Does he love us does he love us this much or does he love us this much? You know? How do we measure it? Okay? How do we see um, how do we actually see this love like John sees it? Okay? Now first um, I have to clarify that when we refer to God's love or the love of Christ or Jesus' love for us, um, we're not talking about that emotional, lovey-dovey, feely type of love that you see in the movies, okay? It's not the romantic love that causes us to feel sappy. Um, the first thing that popped into my mind when I wrote, How Do We Know, was that Enchanted song, okay? You remember that movie? Where they sing in that, you know, ridiculous Jamaican voice. They're like, how does she know that she loves it? right? That, that song? And then in that song, there's questions that they ask to measure the love, okay? How do you know you love her? How do you show her that you love her? How do you really, 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 truly love her, right? You guys know that song? Um, For those of us who aren't familiar with the movie, there's like this, you know, big old Disney parade in the streets and these animals are hopping around. And then there's this musical part where they start responding to each other, okay? They say... Do you remind her? Does he leave you little notes around? Does he send you flowers? Does he wear your favorite color so that you can match? Um, That's not the type of love that we're speaking of. Okay? True biblical love isn't just some sort of emotion um, that makes someone feel good. But the movie, it did ask some good questions. Okay? It said, how do you know that he loves you? 
How does he show that he loves you? Or another way to phrase it, how much does he love you? See, there are certain things that show the measure or depth of someone's love. And what I want to do right now is take some time, a decent amount of time, to do exactly what John wants us to do. And that is to see God's love, to behold God's love, to stop and wonder and meditate on it, to think about the measure of God's love, to consider it, to take notice of the kind of love that the Father has given to us in verse 1. Because this is not some ordinary love, okay? It's totally foreign. It's a, it's a love that is of a different kind. The same word translated as kind here in verse 1 was used by Jesus' disciples after he stood up in the boat to bring the winds and the waves to a standstill in Matthew 8. He said this, they marveled, saying, What kind of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? What sort of man is this? What planet is he from? And God's love is like that, see? It doesn't fit into any category. It's unexplainable. The measure or depth of his love is so great and so vast, it's difficult to comprehend because it's unlike anything we've ever seen. This is the kind of love that God has for us. And so um, as best and as briefly as we can, um, I want to show you just how different his love is by trying to measure it, okay? So we're going to kind of divert from our passage for a while um, just to examine his love because I think it's important to see what John sees um, when he speaks of God's love, to truly understand just how great a love that God has given us, okay? And I think even later on as we get into like chapter four, it'll be good to know um, and just examine God's love for us, okay? Okay, so I came up with a few different ways in which we can measure God's love. And some of you from light um, might remember some of this, but okay, the first way, the first measure that I came up with was the cost, the cost. So we can see God's love for us by looking at what it costs him, by the sacrifice he made. So when measuring someone's love, we can normally get a general sense of the depth of his love by asking what that love costs, right? How much did he sacrifice to show or prove that love? And usually, the greater the cost, the greater the sacrifice, the greater the love, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave his only son. 1 John 4.9 says the same thing. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. See, God showed us his love by giving up his only son, Jesus, to die on the cross for us. That was the cost. I hope no one takes um, personal offense to this, but as a father, even though my son is like a blatant sinner that sometimes like terrorizes me and my wife, um, I would never give him up to die for anyone here. The cost is just too high for me. But if I was ever put in some weird situation where, like, I actually had a choice to sacrifice his life to save any one of you, and I actually chose to do that, no one would question my love for you, right? The high cost clearly shows a higher degree of love. But think about 
what God's love costs him. He sacrificed his one and only son who was perfect in every way. He was the second person of the Trinity in whom he had perfect fellowship from the beginning of time. God sent him to be mocked and slaughtered on a cross so that we might live through him. The cost was higher than we could imagine. But what made his love even more costly was the fact that God himself had to be the one to pour out his full wrath on his own son. There was no one else to do it. In order to satisfy his wrath, God had to crush his own son. He who knew no sin had to be punished by his own father. And even in the midst of hearing his son cry out to him on the cross, knowing full well that he could have rescued him in an instant, he turned his face from him and allowed him to take the punishment that we deserved. It was the most costly love ever to be displayed. That's the kind of love that God has for us. It's a costly love. Second, we can measure love by um, how undeserving uh, the recipients are. If you want to turn to Romans 5, uh, 6 through 8, it reads this. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps... For a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God's love is further proved by how unworthy we are of his love. That is, he didn't love us because of any good thing that we did. He loved us while we were weak, while we were ungodly, while we were still sinners. He let his son pay the cost on the cross for sinners, the very same people that opposed him and put him on the cross. God sent his son to die for them, to die for us. And while this passage mentions the great cost, the focus here is more on our state. It shows how helpless and rebellious we were. See, the greater love is shown when the object of that love is undeserving. The more undeserving, the greater the display of love. Look how Paul in verse 7 compares human love to the love of God. He says this, One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. See, from our perspective, it's rare to see anyone lay their lives down for the sake of another. When I think about this for myself, sometimes I wonder how willing I would be to lay my life down for others. In fact, like for random strangers, I think in most situations I probably wouldn't. And I'd like to be noble enough to say that, of course I would lay down my life for my friends. But then, if the situation came, I think it'd still be hard, depending on who it was, you know? Um, But see, human love has limitations. We won't just lay our lives down for anyone. We may not even lay down our lives for the people we care about when the time comes. But when we do see a sacrifice to that extent, we don't doubt the love that person um, showed, okay? But look at how God loved us, right? Look at the difference between how we love and how God loves. While we were weak and helpless, while we were ungodly or rebellious towards Christ, still sinners, Christ died for us. He sent his son to pay the cost anyways. There wasn't any extra requirement for his love. He didn't wait for us to perform better or he didn't look into the future to see how good we would be. Um, he loved us while we were still actively sinning against him. We did nothing to deserve his love. Further down in verse 10, it says, 
uh, we were reconciled to him while we were enemies of God. We weren't just random strangers. Worse, we were at odds with him. If anything, we deserved his full wrath, and yet he still loved us. Look at what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 32. It says this, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. See, God lavishly loves those who have no ability to give him anything in return. He gives the highest quality of love. It was reserved for the most undeserving. That's the kind of love that God has for us. It's a love that seeks no return. Third is the freedom by which he loves us. The freedom. And I'm going to use Jesus as an example here. Um, In John chapter 10, um, starting at verse 14, it says this, I am the good shepherd... I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So notice the emphasis on how Christ is the one who lays his own life down. He says in verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. Again in verse 17, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Again in verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it back up again. See, Christ was the one who laid down his life. He wasn't forced into submission or taken against his will. He allowed the soldiers to take him away. He allowed them to mock and beat him. He allowed them even to crucify him on the cross. Christ died willingly. Nothing happened that wasn't under his control. In Matthew 26, um, when Jesus was about to be seized in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter pulled out his sword to defend him, um, but Jesus rebuked him. He rebuked Peter. He said, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? See, Christ, at any point in time, could have called it quits. He could have easily called legions of angels to free him if he wanted to, but he didn't. He freely went with them, knowing that he would be unfairly judged. No one forced him to go to the cross. No one was able to take Christ's life without his permission. Now, why is this important? Okay. How does his freedom show the measure of his love? To explain this, let me, let me ask you this. Do you experience greater love when someone willingly sacrifices something for you or when they're forced? See, Jesus had no obligation. No one could force him to sacrifice his life even if they tried. He had no ulterior motive for loving us. He laid down his own life. 
he laid it down on his own accord. See, if the soldiers had seized him against his will, right? And if up to the point of death, Christ like tried to escape from the cross, um, but he was killed anyways, then his love wouldn't seem that great, right? We would question his love, you know? Maybe, maybe he didn't want to die for our sins. Maybe, maybe he was out of his control and he only died because like the Roman guards forced him. But that's not how it happened. He went to the cross freely on his own accord. He died willingly with the joy set before him, not because death is enjoyable, but because it was necessary for us to be saved. Christ lovingly chose to endure the cross for us. Jesus had full authority of life over his life. He was the king of kings. He was God incarnate. He was free to do whatever he pleased. In fact, if there were any person more free, it was him, right? But out of all of the things he could have done, he chose to love us. He chose to love us in a way that cost him deeply. He chose to love us even when we hated him. And he loves us freely with no exceptions. His love is shown by the freedom. Fourth is the perseverance. Love can be measured by its perseverance. And to that, we turn to Romans 8. We probably know this passage Romans 8.35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, God's love for us, it never changes. His love is always present, and it's always actively pursuing us. It's everlasting. This is a huge contrast to human love, right? Our love is just so inconsistent. It can change in an instant depending on the circumstance, right? But God's love is different. No matter the situation, no matter the circumstance, God's love will always remain true. Verse 35, it asks the rhetorical question, right? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? The answer is none of this can, right? There is no circumstance that can separate us from God's love. His love is constant. See, God's love, it's not like our love. Our love always comes to an end at some point. Even as two people get married, right? They say in their vows, what do they say? They say, till death do us part. But that's not even the case with God's love, right? It goes beyond life and continues through eternity. It perseveres, right? For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's no circumstance, no distance, no person, not even death itself can separate us from the love of God. It's truly an an amazing love. The free, yet costly, undeserving, and persevering love of God That's the kind of love that the Father has given to us. We're not done. Lastly, we can see God's unique love by the benefits that we receive. 
We can often measure someone's love by the greatness of the benefit. Now, I don't have time to go through like in detail of all the benefits that we receive um, from being loved by God because I still got to get to the passage. But part of the benefit is that Christ's death made it possible for us to be forgiven, to be made right with God. See, we were enemies of God, but now we're reconciled by the blood of Christ. We're spared from eternal punishment. Instead of an eternity in hell, we get an eternity in heaven with Jesus. No other love can even come close to offering a benefit like this. But not only that, and this is where we finally come back to our passage, okay, in in verse 1, okay? Let's read from verse 1. It says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that, here's the benefit, okay, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. See, God not only saved us from his wrath, he brought us into his family. He caused us to be born of him so that we could be called his children. And I can't think of a greater benefit than this, right? The fact that undeserving sinners can be forgiven is one thing, but this takes love to a whole nother level. And not only are we considered his children, we actually are. Every believer, okay, is right now a child of God. No love can compare in offering such a rich benefit. This is the love that God has shown us. It's a love that costs, a love that is free and undeserving, a love that perseveres and grants immeasurable benefits. He loves us way more than we could imagine. See the kind of love that the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And so this is the first point in the outline, okay? This is what we are. We are children of God, children of God. His love has been poured out to us in such a way that he calls us his children, Now, there are a ton of implications to being a child of God, okay? For one, um, we should have this feeling, we should have a feeling of security and assurance in regards to our position with him. That is, we don't have a fear of losing his love. Since he is our father, he's our heavenly father, we are already fully loved and accepted by him as his children, and that can never change. There's also, there's a certain level of intimacy that we have with him, okay? Um, In Romans 8, it highlights this for us. It says in verse 14 of Romans 8, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. See, we weren't saved just to be his household servants. right? Um, his love, it went beyond that. We've been adopted as sons and daughters. And as his children, we get to call him Abba, Father, right? The idea is like, um, it's like, it's like a child spotting his dad for the first time um, that day. He like runs up, and he's like, Daddy, you know, right? He's so excited to see him. My kid, he just kind of points at me and goes, Dah! Right? It kind of, it melts my heart. It really does. Um, 
But anyways, um, God is not a distant father. There's an intimacy to that relationship. We're his kids. He's our dad. Furthermore, in verse 16, it says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So we are his children, intimately loved by God. But as a result, we're also his heirs. We get to share in the same inheritance as Christ. This is also another benefit of his love. But um, we will have access to everything that Christ has. And one day we will be glorified with him. And realize this, that God didn't have to do any of this. Okay? He wasn't even obligated to save us. God could have instantly killed all of us and just sent us to hell for our sin. Okay? Yeah, he chose not to. But even so, okay, he could have just said, okay, um, I'll save you from your sin. I'll even send my son to pay the cost for you. But after that, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Right? And he would still be loving to do that. But look at the kind of love that the Father has given to us. After forgiving us of our sin, he adopts us into his family and brings us in as one of his own. His love, it went way beyond forgiveness. We moved from being enemies of God to becoming his children. And if he loved me while I was his enemy, how much more will he love me as his child? This is the kind of love that God has lavished on us, a love that allows us to be called children of God. And so this is what we are. Now, some of you, um, or some of us, might be thinking, okay, so if I am a child of God right now, I am a child of God, right? Why don't I feel that way? Right? How come I don't see the benefits of that right now? I mean, if I walk into like a store, you know, like, I'm a child of God, right? No one recognizes me, right? Shouldn't I be living like a prince? Shouldn't people respect me? Shouldn't they see me as someone with authority? My dad's God, right? Um, Well, the next part of the verse tells us why we feel this way. It says this. It says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So we don't feel accepted here because the world doesn't recognize us. Down in verse um, 13 of the same chapter, John says this. He says it more explicitly. He says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Okay? It's kind of, the, kind of the opposite of what I, was ex- what I would expect, right? I'm a child of God. The world hates me, right? So, so not only do they not recognize us, the world actually hates us. But that's because the world hates God. And God's our Father. See, now that we are co-heirs with Christ, now that we bear the same family name, we not only share the benefits, we share in his sufferings. Remember in Romans that um, we are children of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him. See, Jesus... He was radically different from anyone else. 
And he suffered for it in this world, okay? He was totally foreign to the world. And the world, they took notice of him, right? They took notice, but they could never actually see him for who he truly was. Though he was their king, he was treated as a slave. Though he was sinless, he was convicted as a criminal. They didn't accept him as the Messiah. They didn't recognize him as their creator. The world just doesn't see him for who he is. But see, man's opinion doesn't have any influence on what is true. Okay? Just because the world did not see him as their king, it doesn't change the fact that he was indeed the king of kings. Just because the world convicted him as a criminal didn't change the fact that he was the perfect, sinless Lamb of God, innocent. So although they knew of God, they had no clue who he really was. They had no clue. And if they weren't able to recognize God, right? if they weren't able to recognize the perfect man, Jesus Christ in the flesh, amidst all of the miracles he performed, how would we expect them to recognize us? The world doesn't recognize us because it doesn't recognize him. Okay? But just because the world doesn't recognize us as children, uh, as God's children, just like Jesus, it doesn't change the fact that we still are children of God. Right? The world doesn't define us. We're defined by what God tells us in his word. And the Bible tells us that those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior are children of God. This is what we are, even at this very moment. Present tense, children of God, yet unrecognized by the world. But this is only temporary, because one day the world will know who we are. Okay? And when that happens, things are going to be vastly different. Okay? It reminds me of this show called um, Undercover Boss. You guys ever heard of that? It's like where the CEO, he goes in and like he disguises himself as like a new employee. And then some of the other employees are, are there. They're like, you know, giving him the orientation. But like they're start, they start talking smack about the CEO, right? They're like, oh, this guy, you know, he never gives us raises. He ne- I never get a promotion. Or um, they're like slacking off, you know, like you see one guy just sleeping in the corner, you know, or someone's like stealing money from the company, um, But these guys had no clue what was going on, okay? They had no clue that the CEO was actually that new employee, like, in the midst, okay? Until the end, when it's it's revealed that, man, this guy was their boss. And then they're like, oh, snaps, right? Then the heads start to roll, all right? And, like, everyone's like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to fire you, things like that. Um, See, when Jesus first came to the world. He came clothed in flesh, right? He came as a man. He was humble and meek. He was silent against his accusers. He willingly accepted um, an unjust punishment from those whom he created. But the world didn't know who he was, right? They disregarded him. But when he comes back a second time, it'll be different, the undercover boss will be revealed, right? And those who didn't recognize him as Lord, those who walked in darkness, those who deceived themselves and others, 
the ones who loved the world and hated one another, the ones who denied Christ and left the church, all of those who failed to abide will be proven as those who never really knew him in the first place. But those who do know God, the ones whom he has effectively loved and called to be his children, the ones who abide will be taken up to heaven to receive the inheritance that was promised. No one will get into heaven in their current state, okay? We'll need to be changed from the inside out before we go there. Heaven doesn't allow sin. And this leads us to our second point, which is what we will be. What we will be. Look on to verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. See, when Jesus comes back to reveal himself as the sovereign judge, as the undercover CEO of the world, um, when he comes back in glory to establish his kingdom, he will not only reveal himself to the world, he'll reveal his heirs. Everyone will see the children of God for what they truly are. This is often called like the glorious manifestation. It's referenced in uh, Romans 8. But for now, what we truly are in Christ hasn't been made fully manifest to the world. Right? We are students. We're developers. We're janitors. We're cashiers and teachers and analysts and accountants and lawyers. Um, but none of these professions, no matter how lowly or prestigious they seem to be here on earth, reflect what we really are in Christ. But beloved, beloved, right? Those loved by God, we are God's children right now. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are right now a child of God. That is where your identity lies. Whatever, whatever we do here on earth, it's only a means for us to express what we truly are. It's, it's, a, it's a temporary stewardship so that we can do the work that we were designed to do which is to make disciples and to bring glory to God in whatever position we're placed. But it's only temporary. See, what we will be has not yet appeared. And so unlike the world, we who know God, we look forward to the day that Christ returns, right? Because then that's at the point where we'll be what we want to be. See, the children of God don't shrink away at his coming, right? They don't shrink away at his coming because they abide in him. They don't have anything to be ashamed of. They look forward to seeing their father because they know his love for them. It's the very same kind of love that made us children to begin with, right? The love that caused us to be born again and persists and perseveres through eternity. See, there is a security that we have as children of God There's like this child-parent relationship that can never be broken because of the love of God. Because of the love of God, it never changes. It never dissipates. And so instead of being ashamed of his coming, we look forward to it because we know that when he comes, when he appears, we shall be like him. And this is the second point. This is what we will be. We will be like Jesus. We'll be conformed to him. 
This is our hope, right? So what are we? We are children of God right now. What will we be? We'll be like him. In one sense, we'll actually be the same, right? We'll still be the children of God. But in another sense, we'll be totally changed, okay? Our present state will finally match what we are positionally. We'll finally be fit to enter heaven. See, right now, we don't really look the part, right? Though we are part of God's family, that resemblance, that family resemblance, it just, it's not quite there yet. We're kind of like, we're kind of like Prince Harry and Meghan, right? Okay, not exactly. But you get what I'm saying, right? We're just, we're not there yet, okay? John says, um, what we will be has not yet appeared. We haven't been perfected yet. We still wrestle with sin. We still have trouble loving one another. We're still far from being righteous, and the list goes on, right? See, right now, though we bear the family name, we don't think and act as we should. And if we're honest, we're actually not much like Christ at all. We're not like him. In fact, none of us are even close right now, right? But all of those who are loved by God will eventually get there. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Now, being like him, of course, doesn't mean that we'll all be exactly the same person. Okay? It doesn't mean that we'll all like have, I mean, this isn't even what Jesus looks like anyway, but it doesn't mean like we'll all have beards and white robes and purple sashes, right? John isn't saying that we're going to be like clones of Jesus. Okay? When it says that we will be like him, it means that we will all in our own unique way manifest the same characteristics and virtues of Christ. When God completes his sanctifying work in us, we'll be able to worship and please God in the same manner as Jesus. We'll have that same compassion and devotion that he had, the same will and willingness to love and serve one another. Every characteristic and virtue that Jesus had will be reflected on us so that every thought that we have okay, and every deed that we perform will be pleasing to the Father. The flesh that so often pulls us away from God, it's no longer going to be there. Our service to him won't have any ulterior motive. Our worship won't be tainted by sinful thoughts. When we become like Christ, we'll finally have the capacity to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, just as he did. I can't even fathom what that will be like, but it's going to be amazing, right? This is the end goal. It's Christ-likeness. This is where we're all headed. This is our hope. And it's not a hope in the sense that we are unsure whether it will happen or not, right? It's not wishful thinking. It's a hope that we know. It's a hope that is sure. It's definitive. Nothing in that verse gives any hint to any uncertainty. It doesn't say, um, we think that if he actually does appear this time, that maybe, um, maybe we'll get a chance to be like him. No, right? John says, we know that when he appears, we shall 
be like him. It's a matter of fact. It's not some like Hail Mary where we're, we're unsure if it'll happen. Christ will appear again. And at that moment, every child of God will be fully conformed to be like him. We can say this with 100% certainty because that's what God's word tells us. Paul says in Romans 8, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. See, it was predetermined. It was already declared that the children of God, those whom he foreknew, would be conformed to be like Christ. It was set in stone. This is the same, this is the promise that God has made, and this is what will happen. This is what we will be. And look at the reason that John gives us here. It's kind of interesting. When Christ appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. See, there's a connection between being like Christ and seeing him for who he is. Not necessarily like visually like seeing him, okay? but in the sense of like knowing him seeing him for who he really is, okay? It causes us to be more like him. See, if you know, okay, if you know that he is righteous, you will practice righteousness. If you fully knew just how righteous he was, you would understand why it's so important to practice it. If you knew just how pure and holy and undefiled he actually is, if you could see it, As his children, you would be pure as he is pure. You would be holy for he is holy. If our goal is to be like him, if that is what we desire, then the more we see him for who he is, the more we will want to become like him. We can kind of see this to a certain degree. It's not a perfect example. Like in our relationships today, um, kind of like the more I hang around my wife, the more I hang around Becca, the more I see her the more I get to know her and spend time with her, the more I kind of become like her. I don't know why. Not that I like look like her physically, but that we start to share the same likes and dislikes. We start to love and enjoy the same things. Um, Our desires become aligned and, and we start to think alike. We don't become the same person, but it seems like the more I know her, the more I come to be like her, for better or for worse, right? But... Even though this example isn't perfect, I think to a much greater degree, right, this kind of happens when we see God for who he really is. Okay? The more we come to know him, the more we will love and understand his character. The more we will want to be like him. Because he's perfect. That's where we want to be. That's why when Jesus finally appears to us, when we see him in all of his glory, and when we have full knowledge of him, We shall be like him. See, God, seeing God, it changes us. Seeing him for who he is changes us. And when he comes on that glorious day, every child of God, established by his love, will see him for who he really is. And then God will have completed his work to make you like his son. That is what we will be. And that is our hope. In verse 3, Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And this brings us to our final point, what we should be. 
what we should be. So we are children of God now. And even though it hasn't been fully manifested as so, we know that in the end, when he appears, we shall be like him. But just because we're guaranteed to be like him in the end doesn't mean that in the meantime, we just sit around and wait for it to happen. Right? Everyone who thus hopes in him, that is, everyone who longs to be like Christ, purifies himself because he is pure. This is what we should be. We should be pure as he is pure. Or to put it generally, more generally, we should be working on our salvation, our sanctification. Not salvation. We should be working on our sanctification. Okay? If our hope is to be like Christ in the end, okay, then there's no way that that desire won't spill into our lives today. Okay? There's just no way. We should be eager to think how he thinks and act how he acts. If you are born again, you are born into a new life with new desires to please him even now, okay? Though we are not fully there yet, our lives should still increasingly look more and more like Christ. This requires discipline, and it requires hard work. It requires denying yourself. It requires practice. Take any great athlete like the late Kobe Bryant. I read an article recently in the New York Times. It was titled, Kobe Always Believed in His Own Greatness. And there's nothing wrong with that, okay? But do you think that even though he believed he would be great in the end, that he could just sit around and wait in the meantime, expecting it to happen? No, of course not, right? He had a certain amount of confidence, but he worked harder than anyone to get there, right? Now think about ourselves. We are children of the living God, predestined to be like Jesus, destined for greatness. Knowing this, it shouldn't cause us to be complacent in our walk. It should fuel our desire to be even more like him. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. See, those who truly hope in him, they don't just sit around idle waiting for Christ to appear. No, they they work all the more with confidence because they know it is God who works both to will and to do for his good pleasure. That he who began a good work will be faithful to carry it to completion until the day that Christ returns. If this is our hope, if this is our life goal, then we need to take action towards getting there, right? So I have to ask this question, okay? Is this what you really want? Is this really your hope? Do you actually desire for him to appear so that you can be like him? That's the hope that this passage is talking about. Because Jesus is pure, You want to be like him, right? Do you want that for your life right now? Do you want to be pure? Do you want purity? That's what Jesus is like. Jesus loved his neighbor. Are you ready to do that right now? 
Jesus, he didn't love the things of the world. Are you ready to give those things up? Jesus never lied. He never cheated. He never hated. He did the will of his Father. He was patient, humble, obedient, and forgiving. That's what Jesus is like. Do you want to be like that? You might answer with a quick yes, of course. Of course I want to be like that. But if you took an honest look at your life now, would that match up with your claim? What are you working on right now to become more and more like Christ? What steps are you taking towards reaching the goal that you say you have? What are you giving up? What are you abstaining from? What are you doing more or less of? See, if becoming like Christ is really our desire, if it's really our upward calling and prize, then we need to put our money where our mouth is. And we need to live like it is, right? If you know that he is righteous and you want to be like him, then you had better be practicing righteousness. If you know that he's pure and your hope is to be like him, then shouldn't you be practicing purity? As children of God, we should be manifesting the life that's in us more and more with each coming day. And the more we know, the more we see him, the more we'll desire this for our life, even right now. See, look at the love that God has given to us to make us what we are. See the love, see the kind of love that the Father has given us. God didn't make us his children so that we would live in the same manner as we did before. No, it's just, it's not possible. His love doesn't allow it. It goes deep into our hearts and changes us from within. It causes us to be born again to a new life. The Holy Spirit dwells in us and is every day making us new, changing us from one degree of glory to another and making us more and more like Jesus Christ. The same love that caused us to be rebirthed as children of God is the same love that will bring us home to where Jesus is. And when we get there, we will be like him. That is the hope of God's children. And as we hope in him, as we look forward to being fully conformed to his image, we strive more and more to be like him today. We purify ourselves as he is pure. We practice righteousness because he is righteous. We walk in the light because in him there is no darkness. We love because God is love. We do everything we can to become more and more like Jesus until he returns, until one day our faith becomes sight. So let's continue to abide and live out what we already are because of his great love, knowing that one day Jesus Christ will appear to make all of his children like him. Let's pray. Father, we are so undeserving of your love. But we thank you that you have poured out your love on us so that we can be called your children. We ask right now that you would help us to be um, fixed on the hope that we have so that we would um, strive to be more and more like your son. We know that we are not perfect and we are not there yet, but we also cling to the promise that you have given to us that says we will one day be like you. And we will one day come into your presence 
and have eternal life with the full capacity to worship you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We ask that you would help us um, to live out who we are, um, even today, even in this world. Though the world um, hates us, though the world does not recognize us, we don't take offense. It's just because they never knew you, God. So we ask that you would help us um, to live amidst all of the hardships that we have. We ask that you would help us to live a life worthy of who we are. We are children of God right now, God. Help us to realize this truth and live accordingly. Pray these things in your name. Amen.